This week on Worldview, as Xi Jinping and Joe Biden meet, US and China decide to resume military communications and aim to work together on artificial intelligence, climate change, and countering narcotics. But despite the bonhomie, Biden calls Xi a dictator. How does this unstable relationship between the world's biggest powers affect India? And what are the takeaways for New Delhi from the summit in San Francisco? Hello and welcome to Worldview at the Hindu with me, Sohasini Heather. U.S. and Chinese presidents met on the sidelines of what's called the APEC or Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Group Summit in the United States in San Francisco. They met outside San Francisco. The APEC, remember, was set up in 1989 to be a premier forum for economic cooperation in the region amongst 21 countries that include U.S., Russia, China, Japan, Australia, uh, ASEAN countries and Taiwan as well. India is not a member. But of course, now it's a member of the Indo-Pacific uh, Strategies, Indo-Pacific Economic Forum or IPEF, uh, which met just before the APEC. And China is not a member of those. Now, this was the first meeting between Biden and Xi since the Bali G20 in 2022 and comes at a time of major global challenges. You have the downturn uh, and, the, and the lack of economic security around the world, but China in particular, the Chinese economy has slowed down post-COVID. Uh, the COVID pandemic itself and this, uh, the scenario of health security, at any time there could be another pandemic, that kind of feeling, that's another big challenge. The possibility of a US-China standoff over Taiwan, this is a, a recurring problem. And then there's the Russia-Ukraine war started in 2022, February, uh, but still no let up in that. And of course, at present, we're all occupied by the Israel-Hamas conflict. Uh, and the U.S. making it clear it will not seek a ceasefire just yet. Now, at the meeting, here's what the leaders said. In fact, Biden recalled meeting uh, 10 years ago when both of them were vice presidents of China and the U.S. And Xi Jinping called the U.S.-China relationship the most important relationship in the world. We have to ensure that competition does not veer into conflict. And we also have to manage it responsibly, that competition. That's what the United States want and what we intend to do. We also, I also believe that's what the world wants for both of us, candid exchange. We also have a responsibility to our people and the work and the world uh, to work together when we see it in our interest to do so. And a critical global challenge that we face from climate change to counter narcotics to artificial intelligence demand our joint efforts. China-U.S. relationship has never been smooth sailing over the past 50 years or more, and it always faces problems of one kind or another. Yet it has kept moving forward amid twists and turns. For two large countries like China and the United States, turning their back on each other is not an option. It is unrealistic for one side to remodel the other, and conflict and confrontation has unbearable consequences for both sides. I'm still of the view that... Major country competition is not the prevailing trend of current times and cannot solve the problems facing China and the United States or the world at large. Planet Earth is big enough for the two countries to succeed, and one country's success is an opportunity for the other. 
it is an objective fact that China and the United States are different in history, culture, social system, and development path. However, as long as they respect each other, coexist in peace, and pursue win-win cooperation, they will be fully capable of rising above differences and find the right way for the two major countries to get along with each other. Not smooth sailing, as Xi Jinping said, and more recently, U.S.-China ties have nosedived over a number of incidents. Um, so, if you look at the tensions over Taiwan, an election is due there in January, and China claims uh, that the U.S. is playing with fire with its support uh, for Taiwan. After Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit last year to Taiwan, in fact, China snapped those military-to-military communications with the U.S. And the U.S. has called on China not to change the status quo over Taiwan and not to interfere in the upcoming January elections. Another flashpoint, the U.S. shut down what it calls Chinese influence operations. In fact, they arrested hackers. Uh, they shut down training, uh, Mandarin training centers, as well as each other's consulates some years ago. The U.S. has also passed a number of legislations that ban Chinese goods, it has also pushed its partners to give up Chinese telecommunication equipment, uh, companies like Huawei, and to restrict critical industry, uh, including semiconductor and chip manufacturing in particular, to domestic U.S. manufacturing, what is called the CHIPS Act now. There was, of course, a huge furor over the Chinese spy balloon. It had the U.S. on high alert. China uh, maintained that it wasn't a spy balloon and simply a weather balloon. And of course, China's maps and its aggression in the South China Sea are a growing concern for the United States. And remember, the U.S. has also supported India on its standoff with China at the line of actual control. So in fact, the U.S. and China have a lot of areas of differences. Much like India and China, however, their bilateral trade is robust. And how the U.S. and China have a bilateral trade of $760 billion dollars. But those growing differences in the past decade have seen a widespread impact. One, on the strategic sphere, as the U.S. sees China along with Russia as its two biggest military challenges. That's in its doctrine now. At 2 million plus, China's military has more personnel than the U.S., but it lags behind in everything else. Expenditure, uh, armored vehicles, naval aircraft carriers, air force as well. On the nuclear front, the U.S. Pentagon actually estimates China has about 400 nuclear warheads amongst the biggest. And remember, the U.S. has about 30,000. On the economic side, and we spoke a little bit about that, since the Trump presidency, the two countries have slapped more tariffs on each other's goods. In fact, about six times more tariffs on each other's goods. So two-thirds of U.S. imports from China today are under tariffs of an average 19.3%. While China taxes about 58% of all U.S. imports at an average of above 21%. And we've seen those exchanges uh, in public. The U.S. is also concerned by Chinese forays around the world, like the Belt and Road Initiative and now the new ones, GDI, GSI, GCI, or Global Development Initiative, Security Initiative, and Civilizational Initiative. The U.S. seeking partners like AUKUS uh, for the submarine or Quad or even IPEF are seen by China as a containment strategy. So they're really ranging off against each other. On human rights, the U.S. has called on China to end human rights violations in Xinjiang, in Tibet, in Hong Kong, other regions, all of which China has dismissed as interference. Given all these flashpoints, the goal for the talks between Xi and Biden was seen much more as crisis prevention rather than dispute resolution. 
Even after their talks, Biden said that he believed Xi Jinping is a dictator and ruffled some feathers amongst the Chinese delegation. Listen in to what Biden said. Mr. President, after today, would you still refer to President Xi as the dictator? It's the term uh, that you used earlier this year. Well, look, he is. I mean, he's a dictator in the sense that he, he is a guy who runs the country that is a communist country that is based on one government from the other than ours. Even so, aside from that one remark, both leaders came out of the talks very positive about the outcomes. They called it a candid and constructive meeting. And in fact, you can read the readouts from both sides uh, on the uh, websites of the uh, White House as well as the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Beijing. But broadly, let's just sum it up for you. One was the resumed military-to-military contacts, uh, speaking on a direct basis, which had been frozen since last year. Uh, the U.S. and the People's Republic of China, or PRC as it's called, will now talk on counter-narcotics. This was a cooperation also that China had suspended, particularly given the amount of uh, drugs like fentanyl uh, precursors in particular that are causing havoc across the United States. Uh, then they've agreed to discuss the risk and safety issues of artificial intelligence uh, they've also uh, now signed a pact, which was not at the president's level, but at the special envoy's level on climate change just ahead of the COP28 summit in Dubai. They have signed uh, an agreement on renewables cooperation and other areas of climate change cooperation, as well as their own commitments on cutting uh, global warming. Then they have agreed to pursue high-level diplomacy. President Biden uh, referred to it as the ability to pick up the phone and have it answered at the highest levels. Remember, in their time, in uh, President Biden's time in the U.S., uh, he has only spoken to Xi Jinping a, a few times. He also held one video conference with him, I think during COVID times, and then met in Bali. So this phone diplomacy may actually be uh, a way of moving things forward. The U.S. has also said that it maintains its one China policy on Taiwan, uh, although it will continue to support it and come to its defense when necessary. Now, between those two leaders, there were also some lighter moments. Uh, Biden checked out Xi's car, for example. It's a beautiful vehicle. It's like that Cadillac we have over there. <laughs> also, we've been hearing from the Chinese side, really pushing the memory of what was called the U.S. Flying Tiger Squadron that helped China defend itself uh, from Japan in the Second World War. Now, amidst all of this and all these signals coming out of San Francisco, what should India watch for? And it's a bit complicated, also a little confusing at times, so bear with me. One is a reduction in U.S.-China tensions always helps diffusing conflict in the region around India. Uh, China's aggressions, U.S.'s counter-mobilization has really added to the tensions and instability, particularly in the South China Sea and in those islands uh, in East Asia. However, conversely, any detente between U.S. and China often leads to India's concerns being pushed aside. Uh, so any attempts at what is called a G2, uh, it's a term just meant for the two big powers in, in the world. Uh, and certainly China would like to see most communication happen at that level at just two uh, countries. 
uh, that should be watched closely. Because remember, even on issues like climate change, uh, for example, the U.S. and China have in the past made pacts uh, even while they were negotiating with India and didn't take India's concerns into account. Third, given India's, uh, given China's diplomatic push with global powers and within South Asia with countries like Bhutan, um, India, the India-China border standoff at the line of actual control really needs to be resolved much more quickly uh, so that the two countries can also move on and discuss other issues. But for that, China has to agree to step back from areas where it amassed troops since 2020. And that so far has eluded the two. Economically as well, India has gained something from the US-China tensions of the past few years. And many US companies like Apple and Microsoft and Tesla are being encouraged to diversify their manufacturing operations in particular and move some of their plants to India. Uh, so any kind of uh, end to the tensions between US and China could affect India adversely there. Here's what External Affairs Minister S. Jai Shankar actually said this week when he was asked about the comparison between India and China. He was in London. Listen in. Reality, which is the rise of China, there's an equal reality, the rise of India. The rise may be different, the time frame may be different, uh, you know, the quantitatively or qualitatively, they may not be identical. But the fact is, uh, as two countries uh, who are really proximate neighbors, who are uh, the two oldest civilizations of the world, who have survived as nation states, who are in a way exceptional nation states because they are civilizational ones. Uh, I think there are realities that need to be uh, recognized. And uh, I, I, you know, uh, perhaps each one of us has some tradition of how we look at the world. But traditions at the end of the day also have to uh, take into account contemporary realities. I mean, I am today the third, uh, the fifth largest economy. I am the largest in terms of population. So what's worldviews take? In a world of global polarization, and I keep talking about this term, any detente between the two big powers that often ask countries uh, to choose between one or the other, obviously that helps India to focus its own priorities rather than being caught between them. So if there's a lack of tensions, that helps India in one sense. It is unlikely that the San Francisco summit will yield more than a working arrangement between the US and China. Tensions could still flare up at any time. So India has to watch for that. Remember also India's strategic ties with China are at present extremely poor, especially compared to its growing ties with the US. And this asymmetry, um, the idea that India or a growing perception that India has somehow chosen a side constrains India's strategic autonomy on the global stage. So something to think about over there as the main headline really remains the US in China discussion. Let's get you some reading recommendations on that. And I have to thank my colleague Anand Krishnan, the Hindu's China correspondent for some of these. Uh, the first book, uh, and this I really do recommend theoretically for foreign policy is a very important one. It's called Destined for War, Can America and China Escape Thucydides' Trap? Uh, this is by Graham Allison, who's written about this for decades. He looks at the theory that whenever a rising power has confronted a ruling power, the result has been a war or bloodshed. Uh, the other book is called The Avoidable War, a different take, the dangers of a catastrophic conflict between the US 
and Xi Jinping's China by Kevin Rudd. He used to be Prime Minister of Australia. He's Australia's ambassador to the US now. Then there is the long game, China's grand strategy to displace American order, how to bridge the gap by Rush Doshi. I've spoken about this book before. Uh, another one uh, Anand's recommended called Superpower Showdown, how the battle between Trump and Xi threatens a new Cold War. This was by Bob Davis and Ling Ling Wei. Uh, and it's important, even though Trump is not at present in power, uh, because the US's policies have continued, it's important to read this book. Another one called Stronger, Adapting America's China Strategy in an Age of Competitive Interdependence. Interesting and very thoughtful by Ryan Haas. Uh, the Strategy of Denial, American Defense in an Age of Great Power Conflict by Eldridge, Eldridge Colby. Uh, this takes a much tougher line on China uh, and really reflects what a lot in the U.S. Congress are now thinking. The 100-Year Marathon, China's Secret Strategy to Replace America as the Global Superpower. This is by Michael Pillsbury. It is a little alarmist, uh, but very, very readable. Uh, two books really on the growing controversies around artificial intelligence, chips and semiconductors. One is called AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley and the New World Order by Kai-Fu Lee. Uh, and then there is a book called Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology by Chris Miller. Finally, The Rise and Fall of Great Powers by Paul Kennedy. I've spoken about this book before. It looks not just at US and uh, China, but also Russia and other global powers. So we hope you enjoyed this edition of Worldview. Do join us again. Do subscribe to the Hindu's YouTube uh, site as well as www.thehindu.com from the team here. Thanks for watching.